Welcome to our church, or back to our church for a lot of you. Um, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your uh, first Sunday, welcome to you. Um, one of the ways we are, uh, to kind of just piggyback on what um, Peter was saying a little bit about Martin Luther and this anniversary of the Reformation, one of the ways that we're celebrating the Reformation is by preaching Galatians. Uh, it is, do I have my clicker? Is my clicker down there somewhere? Oh, it's right there. I'll just get a click. I knew I was missing something. There we go. Um, is by preaching Galatians. Galatians was uh, one of Luther's favorite books. If you know a bit about his story, uh, some of the theology of the book of Galatians, and of course uh, across the New Testament, but the book of Romans as well, that speaks so clearly about faith over and against law in terms of what mediates us to God or Christ and his spirit over what we have to give him, uh, was very formative. He, he was a, a seared conscience guy. Like if you read some of his stuff, he, um, he was really bothered by the law. Being a Roman Catholic monk, and living kind of under that way of thinking about the Bible and law, it was very, very troublesome for him. He felt extremely imprisoned by legalism and by moralism and just by uh, viewing the Old Testament law as something that's still kind of over us on a requirement level, even as Christians. And it seared his conscience. And he actually, at one point in his writings, just confesses that he hated God for the sake of the law. He just hated that he put these things over him that he couldn't keep. And what freed him was the actual gospel. He realized he wasn't believing the true gospel, that this issue of faith was uh, a drum that wasn't being beaten enough in the church. And it wasn't completely lost, but it basically was. And there were roamings of the Reformation that happened before Luther, so he was not the first guy. There were always the true church and true faith and true gospel, and all of that was, was always there. It's just in terms of like the face of the state church of the day, it was not there. They went a different direction. Uh, and said, Jesus is good, but you also have to do these things to be saved, and there's a way to actually purchase your salvation. Sounds crazy. Uh, and that's something that was happening uh, a long time ago, but in terms of how we think about our salvation, we have the same propensities, and this is why Galatians is written. We're, we're not that different. So when you hear that, you think, oh, that's crazy. I'm so glad that's gone. It's, it's not really gone. Uh, we, we think we can buy it all the time in the way that we think about God and our, our good works and our actions and attending church and uh, grading ourselves on a curve in terms of good works, looking down on people for not keeping up with us, and a whole slew of other things. So, um, so anyway, all that to say, just to, again, go off what Peter was saying, that was really helpful, and um, to just say this is one of the ways we're celebrating is by preaching this book. If that wasn't said before, I couldn't remember if it was, but um, that's one of the reasons why we're, we're doing it. So uh, to catch you guys up to speed, we are today in Galatians 3.23 all the way through chapter 4.7 is today's section. So if you want to turn there in your phone apps or Bibles, uh, go for it. This will be on screen here too in a second, so that's totally fine just to read up there as well. But if you want to see it in context, go ahead and find, uh, find that. Uh, to remind you what's going on in this book, this is written by the Apostle Paul who wrote uh, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And he was a church planting pastor, an apostle, which means a sent one, helped to establish the early church. Before that, he was killing Christians. Then Jesus saved him. And then he was planting churches, which is really cool, uh, grace-filled conversion story. He brings up in Galatians, if you haven't read up to this point, I encourage you to do that. Basically, he's saying, arguing for grace, arguing for the fact that the only way we're saved is by God because of my story. He's saying, look at me. Why am I even here? And so he goes into that at the end of chapter 1 and into 2 uh, and argues from a variety of angles uh, that it's, it's all about Christ. And so what's happening here in Galatia in these grouping of churches in the Galatian region, which is the Roman province of the day, is that false teaching was infiltrating the churches. And remember, Paul's not surprised that there's false teaching there. There will always be false teaching on some level 
in churches. It will be seeping in uh, some areas of maybe just culture or the world or whatever, different churches more than others. But he, so he's not surprised by that. He's surprised that they're so quickly embracing this gospel that, they, that is so contrary to what they first believed in. And so he actually is pretty animated. If you, if you read the introduction in Galatians 1, he's more angry in, in this book than he is in any of his other introductions to any of the other letters he wrote in the Bible. Uh, he, he's saying this in love, he, but he's, it's, a, it's a tough love kind of book. He writes just upset that they're so quickly uh, embracing themselves at the expense of Christ and, and going back to what they can do or what they can add to the fact that Jesus died for their sins. They're adding to it. And so Paul is, is addressing it. But basically, that's what the false teaching is. There's more to say than that, uh, but by means of summary, the false teaching was Jesus gets you in and law keeps you in. That's going on in Luther's day as well. To go back to that, that's what differentiates Protestants right there. There are many things actually, but from Roman Catholics is the issue of how do you remain in or how, how are the benefits of the gospel dispensed to Christians? You know, is it all from Christ? Are, are we justified or made right before God by Christ, but then the idea of being made holy or sanctified, is that from us? Or is that from God too? And Catholics would say the latter is from us. God saves, we sanctify or make holy ourselves through observance of the sacraments and, and other things. Protestants kind of, again, this is, this is where, where Luther and others kind of swooped in and, and said historically that no, sanctification or the process of becoming holy or receiving the benefits of what Christ did for us on that cross, a changed life, that's a gift from above as well. Everything, the whole thing. And that to this day actually is something that differentiates Protestants uh, from, from Catholics too. Again, happening here though, and actually you read Luther's commentary on Galatians, he talks a lot about the Papists, he calls them, or uh, the, the Catholics of his day who are like the false teachers in Paul's day. Uh, and so he makes a lot of those, those kinds of things. The actual issue was circumcision, so Jewish Christians not understanding or having actually ill motive, trying to derail Gentiles' uh, faith, so posing as Christians, infiltrating, requiring circumcision, for these non-Jewish Christians in order to be saved. But that was more of an entry law, so to speak, into requiring all of it, which included the Ten Commandments and the moral law. That's how Paul speaks. He does not just speak to circumcision. He backs up and says, if you require that, you require all of it. Now, you can't just cherry pick. And so Paul's been, again, arguing from personal experience, from his own story, from human reason and analogy, and the Old Testament itself, which looks ahead to these things, for the principle of faith over law, grace over works, God's spirit over our flesh and what we have to do, Jesus over us. But then the logical question arises. We looked at this last week, the question of why did God then even add law at all in the Old Testament? And then he poses that, which I love that it's in the Bible. It's a great question. If you've ever wondered that theologically, you're, you're probably understanding the gospel well if you're asking the question. Uh, that's a good like, kind of litmus test. You understand the gospel well if you ask, why then the law? Because if you don't ask it, you're probably adding too much law to the gospel. And so we mentioned that last week as well. But the question itself, so he answers it basically with, with two things, or, or one, but we talked about how the law can restrain sin a bit. That's a good thing. But more so, and this is not how we normally think about it, he uses the phrase, the law was added to imprison everything under sin to make us yearn for another kind of liberator. So that phrase, imprison everything. So the law made the problem of sin worse. It was like a mirror that showed us our dirty face, that we might go elsewhere uh, than the mirror to be, to be cleansed, and, and that is to Christ. And so it was a logical thing in one sense, but a, a theological problem. 
that Paul writes to, to correct for Christians like us that maybe don't fully understand the gospel yet, or we kind of do, but we're forgetful. And um, so for us, this is grace. For our church, this is a grace. This is a gracious thing to remember this. And especially as we look at it and think, I'm not that different than, than, these, than these Galatians. So, so today what we're going to do is just, he's going to continue the argument. He, he's going to argue with more analogies, one primarily, primary analogy, but from two different angles. And uh, you'll see what I mean here in a second. So let's read, though, the first section to start, and we'll actually stop there for some things before moving on. Galatians 3.23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All right, so let's just walk through this kind of top to bottom. We normally do this. It'll feel a little bit more like that uh, this week maybe than usual. I'm not going to talk about all of this. If you want to talk about more, let's get coffee. I'd love to talk about more of this with you throughout the week, or Spence would as well. Uh, but we are going to highlight some things that are main, part of the main argument uh, here. And that starts with verse 23. The way he begins here is, is important. He says, and just to clarify this statement, because it's kind of cryptic. He says, now before faith came. This means before the era of faith came. So before the New Testament came. Although faith existed beforehand in the Old Testament, it ran concurrently with the Old Testament, or law, itself. The law which mediated people to God uh, for a time. So by when faith came, he means when Jesus came. To end the law and usher in a New Testament of grace and freedom for sinners. To access God now based on his work and not ours. Not freedom to sin, that's really important, not a freedom to now go and sin, but freedom from the law that condemned and didn't reconcile us with God. So we talked last week about how the, the law is good, then it can have a good purpose, how it can restrain sin a little bit, and, and in that way point us to the true restrainer, who is Jesus Christ. But more than that, it can't destroy sin like Jesus can. And so there's a contrast there, there as well. So I mean, think about that gospel. That's something that, that Paul's been shaping a little bit in his argument, and we've talked about. But if you have addictions to sins, if you're up to your eyeballs, you've tried really hard to stop something that you can't, if you just hate a part of your past and you have shame or guilt over it, if someone came to you and said, I'm offering you two options in light of all of that stuff that you feel imprisoned by, two options. One is to restrain that sin, and the other is to destroy it. What are you going to pick? obviously destroy yes restraining is partial temporary not as good it's good but not great destruction's better and that's what jesus has to give so the lock with its restraining power partial yeah but not really points us to the true restrainer but it's bypassed by the destroyer of of sin and uh and in that way bypassing law because because it can't do it or think about it this way a prison cell 
restrain a criminal from committing more crimes for a time because that criminal's in prison. They can't go out and murder again. They can't go out and rob again for a time. But that prison cell itself can't change the heart. And Paul's likening prison cell and law here. Right? The law can restrain a little bit, but it can't, change, it can't change the heart. It can't destroy sin. It can't forgive sin. Only God can do that. And so the maxim there is, we've been saying through this series, is we don't need restraining, we need resurrection. We don't need restraining, we need God himself. Right? And the problem with uh, law-based morality is it can take the focus off of the true need. And really what the Bible is getting at is the law is sort of good, partial, but it's placeholding, and it gets us to something much better. All right, so he, he goes on. Then he uses another analogy pretty much right away here. Uh, like last week, saying kind of the same thing, just with different imagery. So today he's saying the law was our guardian until Christ came. So guardians from the Greek word pedagogos, which means an in-home custodian of sorts who helped to oversee a child's conduct and to watch over him. So not really a teacher per se, but a manager of character until the child came of age and left home. Which is why he says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, or that is to say, we're no longer under a law. It's like we've grown past that now, redemptive historically, or just kind of chronologically. Now in Christ, we're no longer under that guardian, like an 18-year-old wouldn't be under an in-home nanny. The law did its job in leading us to Christ by exposing our sin, but now that Christ is here, its job is done. All we have now is Christ. It'd be strange for an adult to go back to homeschooling with a nanny or tutor, right? This is the argument. In the same way, it'd be strange for a Christian to go back under law and as, as though it's required for them to be justified before God, sanctified or made holy, or in any way as the process of drawing near uh, to, to him. So biblically, historically, personally, spiritually, there's movement in this analogy, movement in the Bible, movement in this passage from the law to something better, from something cold to something loving, from tutors or guardians uh, to more this parental idea, which we'll see more of in a second, more this parental idea of, of God's love. Actually, Luther in his commentary in this passage says something like, he just poses the question like, show me a pupil who loves his tutor dearly. You know, which I, which I love that. Because it's not really, you don't really see that, right? It's more of a, a teacher's an obli- is obligatorily, is that a word? Uh, teaching, it's a job. There's not that kind of parental love for the kids, at least as much. There might be some exceptions out there. But, uh, but it's not usually kind of a love thing. It's like, oh, yeah, pretty great teacher, whatever. But, but parents are better. And so it's, it's a curious, interesting metaphor. You know, what the law is likened to a, a, a nanny or an in-home tutor or, you know, at best, like a good teacher. It's like, again, there's been some good to that, but it's not great, and it's bypassed by something better, and that is God himself. Then he says in Galatians 3.28, skipping a little bit here, uh, it's a great verse. In fact, let me just read it again. 3.28 says, there, so because all this is true, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Sometimes it's a verse that you guys uh, may be familiar with this, but a verse that's plucked out of context to argue for equality, just baseline equality in the church. On one level, as it should be, it is about equality. But in context here, it's actually more of an argument for grace. It's an argument for grace. 
He's not saying there's no such thing as gender anymore. There's no such thing as ethnicity or no such thing as social class distinctions. Rather, he's saying that because of Christ, there's no partiality. Because he saved us by his work and not ours, there's no distinction anymore, really on any level. That's just the three things that kind of summarize different things in society. But you you can apply it anywhere. There's no distinction. And so Jesus has come to fulfill, replace the law. It's by grace now. It literally opens up salvation to everyone who reaches for it. You could even add the clause here in 28. In addition to those three, you could say now in Christ, there's no holy or sinner. There's no holy one or sinner anymore. Because it's completely by grace. I mean, obviously there's a distinction between someone who's actively sinning and not. Obviously. Just like there's an obvious difference between men and women. But in Christ, there's no partiality. Because the essence of our faith is not holding up a, a, a report card, something that is to our, our credit, moralistically, the essence is the gospel. So because of that, there's no distinction anymore before the foot of the cross in terms of holiness. All are holy in Christ, or none are. All are accepted by the love of Christ, or none are. There's no totem pole, there's no pyramid. If it's all about Christ, then Galatians 3.28, that's how we kind of see grace maybe at work in a church community. We see no partiality, which screams grace, screams grace, because law means partiality. If it's about law, it implies the fact that there is, there's a difference. You could also add, there are no more pastors or laymen. Obviously, there's pastors in a church. That's a good thing. The Bible teaches that and encourages that. It's gonna, that, that needs to take place. But in Christ, there's no distinction between pastors and laymen. Pastors aren't better. They're not more holy. They don't have like, greater access to God anymore as like a mediator or anything like that. There are no pastors and laymen in Christ. There's no distinction. We could add a bunch of those things. Maybe other things come to mind for you guys as other dichotomies there that in Christ are, are pairings, that in Christ there's no difference. But think about the ramifications for that for a second. It's incredible. If that's all true in a church, there's no competition. There's no envy anymore. There's appreciation for the good in others and the difference. We're not threatened by it. We appreciate the good and want to receive from it. There's a willingness to emulate others rather than compete with them. There's freedom to love and to look to others more than ourselves. There's acceptance and there's unity amidst diversity and many other things we we could list. The only way to have no partiality between Christians is the gospel. The the second we we make law or to-do lists or commandments, we make that a thing between us and God, we instantly have partiality. Because instantly, you've done more than the person you're sitting next to. And instantly, the person on the other side of you has done more than you. And instantly, there's competition. Instantly, there's envy. Instantly, there's jealousy. Instantly, there's this question of, am I loved as much by God? Because they've done more than I have spiritually. They're a better person than I am. Instantly, we have those non-gospel thoughts. The second you add law, the second you add partiality, the second that all these things lead to sin. And they lead to a community of barriers and factions and mask wearing and non-authenticity. You know, when you guys come across, and this will come up in Galatians, but when you see a command or a, a New Testament ethic in the New Testament to not envy, 
It might as well be saying, in fact, I encourage you to read this in the white space, into what it's saying. It might as well be saying, live by grace, not by works. Because the only way to, to live a non-envious lifestyle is to truly believe that the person over there uh, and you are on an equal level before the foot of the cross. And everything that they have has been given. Nothing's earned. Nothing's truly worked for. Everything's a gift. It's true in your life as well. To live a law-centered life is to envy those who are doing more than you. So the commands to envy or to not envy and do things like that in the gospel are not, they're not worlds apart. They're links. You know, Paul's saying here, believe the gospel, believe it's all about grace. Then as a byproduct of that, you just won't envy that much in church. Because there's no partiality, there's there's no difference between, between us. Those of you who have been a Christian for a week, and those of you who have for 50 years, there's no difference. You have the same spirit. You know, the, the, those of you who are like, you know, who consider yourself maybe more mature in the faith or have more like miles under, uh, you know, on the spiritual odometer of your life, you know, like that's, not, that's great, praise God, but you're not closer to God. The, the person who just professed faith and was just baptized is equally, they're, they're equally there. That's what this means. It's amazing. Do not envy comes from thinking thoroughly about the cross. Do not envy comes from thinking thoroughly about Jesus' gracious gift. To think less of it or less of Christ is to think more of ourselves, which is then to envy those who are better than us. See how this is connected? It might as well just be saying, live by grace, uh, not by the law anymore or by works, or or at least to rely on those things. Uh, It's saying the same thing, because if you do that, then you will envy less and put others before you. You won't be threatened by that. You'll celebrate people's victories. You'll celebrate their teachings. You'll celebrate their gifts being used. You'll celebrate how much they have to give you spiritually because God's grace is working through them in a way. Like, all the stuff the Bible talks about is a good thing. You'll actually have that if you're a gospel person. But if it's in any way about the law, any way about the commandments anymore, like, between us and God, we have partiality. And all those things, those New Testament ethics, can't apply them. We can't really apply them. We can fake it, but we can't really apply them. All right, let's keep going. Four, one to seven now. Let's read this in full. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. All right, so Paul here is building off the metaphor from earlier, but this time kind of building on it. He, he's linking the idea of child and slave, saying they're really no different. When you think of slave, don't think of what we think about when we think about slavery. Uh, it was not like that. It was more of like an in-home employee, and there were certainly bad situations for sure in the Roman Empire, but uh, like a fifth of Roman Empire or something like that was, was this kind of slave. They were just employees, uh, groundskeepers, tradesmen that worked for uh, other people in, in their homes. 
So that the linking here is really important between the two, the, the, the child and the slave. The problem, just back up a second to go back to the, the broader metaphor, it's important because the problem with seeing the metaphor from law to Christ, Old to New Testament, promise to fulfillment, the problem with seeing the metaphor about law to Christ just as a child to adult metaphor or boy to man could be concluded that it means that we grow from immature inability to keep the law to now a more mature ability to keep it in the New Testament. You guys see that argument? Child to adult. If that's what he was saying, he's not. Well, it's slave to son. We'll talk about this. But if it was just child to adult, it could be concluded that the spiritual lesson behind that means that we grow, and I say we again collectively, so Old to New Testament, just we as humanity, grow from an immature inability to keep the law to now, with a little bit of help from Christ, a more mature ability, an adult-like ability, to keep the Old Testament laws, including the Ten Commandments, now in the New Testament. But that's not what he's saying. Rather, it's movement from slave to son, slave to heir. It's more of a transfer of status, not just a growing up or maturing, but this is a complete transfer of status. In verse 3 here, it says that we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, another phrase for the law in Paul's writings. Verse 4 talks about what occurred to move us from the state of slavery to being adopted into sonship, which in the first century in the Roman Empire, that could happen. Slaves could be adopted into families. Adult slaves or employees could be adopted and given the same rights as children. And so he's pulling from that idea. Verse 4 talks, though, about what occurred to get us there, what moved us from a state of slavery under the law to now adoption or, or sonship. And he just, just describes it. It's like Christmassy. This is like a, a great Christmas verse here. It's a series of verses. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son Jesus to be born of woman. Notice here it doesn't say man because Jesus wasn't born of man. He was born, Joseph wasn't his dad. The virgin birth is a thing. It smacks of virgin birth. He was born of God and humanly speaking, just born of woman, not man. Then born under law, into our prison, but placing himself under it so that it might condemn him instead of us. It's incredible that it says under law. And look at the, the result or the, the so what. To redeem those, or to redeem means to buy back from slavery, so it fits with the metaphor here. To buy back from slavery those who were enslaved to their sin underneath that law, which constantly showed them how bad they were and that they couldn't keep it or measure up. So when you see the preposition under here, think under its weight. I mean, even the word itself implies there's something over. And so to say that there's something over Christ, who is God, is strange. It should give us a head-scratching moment here. But what he's saying is Christ, who actually is himself as the Son of God over the law, was born under it. When you see under, think of under its heaviness, under its weight, under its condemnation. Remember, as we talked about last week, when, when you read in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, also Hebrews 12 is a great place to see this uh, contrast, actually. Uh, if we had more time, I'd, I'd look at that with you guys. I encourage you to read that. But um, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, when the Ten Commandments, uh, this core piece dimension to the moral law in the Old Testament, when it was given, right afterwards it led to death. It led, it led to people not, and actually in Hebrews 12 in the New Testament it says, it, it points out, like I said last week, 
People covered their ears and begged God to stop talking. Not exactly like a, oh, the law is what I'm missing in my life moment here. You know, not exactly a happy, happy thing. People died when the law was given. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, I think it is, in context, Paul says the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so kind of a hearkening back to those stories. It's easy to forget these things unless we read them. You know, like just to think about some dimension of goodness to the law, which is good, we should, but to think, well, if it was so good, why did people die? Why did they cover their ears and beg God not to speak? They couldn't bear the command, it says. And Hebrews 12 picks up on this and comments how we're not, by, we're not under that mountain anymore. That, that was an Old Testament covenantal picture. It's, we're, we're now at a different mountain, the mountain that is covered with Christ's blood. It's an angel of, or it's a mountain of angelic festal gathering. It's a party, and it's full of grace and happiness. It's Mount Zion, spiritually speaking, not, not Mount Sinai. So that's, that's a whole other sermon. But anyway, but it was, it was an indictment. The law was an indictment. It was a death warrant. So for, for this to be saying he was placed under the law is, is heaviness. It's Good Friday focused. Uh, Luther comments on this so good. He says this about this particular idea and this verse, actually. The words, Christ was made under the law, are worth all the attention we can bestow upon them. They declare that the Son of God did not only fulfill one or two easy requirements of the law, but that he endured all the tortures of the law. The law brought all its fright to bear upon Christ until he experienced anguish and terror such as nobody else ever experienced. His bloody sweat, his need of angelic comfort, his tremulous prayer in the garden, his lamentation on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bear eloquent witness to the sting of the law. He suffered to redeem those who were under it, under the law. So what this all tells us, I'm going to try to, so weave this idea back into the metaphor itself of moving from, from slave to son, old to new, terror when the law was given to relief when Jesus is given and joy when Jesus is given, is to think about it this way. What this is saying is Jesus is not a teacher who matured us under the law. Jesus is not a teacher who matured us under the law, but rather a savior who redeemed us from our sin through his own death. So in other words, think about it this way. Other religions would say this. If other religions kind of picked up Galatians 4 and kind of rewrote it in light of their theology, other religions would, would say here, when the fullness of time had come, our sage was born under the law to teach us how to ourselves live rightly under it, to flourish moralistically and to achieve our true potential. That's what other religions, in fact, do say, but, but would say if they kind of hijacked this idea. They would say, when the fullness of time had come, our sage was born under the law to teach us how to ourselves live rightly under it, to flourish moralistically and to achieve our true potential. But that's not what the Bible says. Not at all. The metaphor makes no sense at all, if that's our conclusion point. No sense at all. Rather, it says that it's about Christ redeeming us out from underneath it. Christ did not bear such torture on that cross under the law so that we ourselves might stay under it. He didn't go through all that he went through to keep us under the weight of it. What's he doing on the cross if he's just going to leave us under this place of, of torment and 
conscience-searing religion. What this is saying is we've been swept out now from underneath it, that we are not under those commandments. We're, we're freed from there, to use his words, prison. He's ending the reign of the law with his own bloody cross, praise be to God, and saying to us that, that I, I didn't come just to do this, just to die. I came to redeem, to buy you back from slavery. Slavery to what? What's he say? To our sin under the reign of the law, which made it, made it accentuated. So the result then, the big, the big so what, or the so that, I guess, uh, to this is towards the bottom in uh, verse um, 6, end of 5 actually in 6. He came to redeem so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So a couple quick things on the implication here as he sees it. The gospel has lots of implications for our lives. This is not meant to be a holistic argument. But he's saying there are a couple of things. Because this is true, because Jesus came to die for us, and in that way, that's it. That's all it means to be saved, is to believe in that. Because of that, these are two like many graces that are dispensed. So there's a ways to understand now who we are to God and what it means just to live on a daily basis as, as a Christian. The first is adoption. So end of five, we've received adoption as sons. We're children now of, of God through our, through our faith. And so adoption implies... To, to again, push the metaphor here a little bit. So as, as we think from Old to New Testament, law to faith, this is saying, because adoption's in play, under the law, we're not a part of God's family. Otherwise, why do we have to be adopted out? And this goes back to the Abraham argument, if you guys were here for this last week. Uh, to be a child of Abraham, to truly be in God's family, is to be a person of faith. It's never about the law. And so adoption means, in, in, in some sense, moralistically or kind of covenantally for Israel's sake, but all of us, when we're outside of Christ, you know, we're under this heaviness of needing to measure up and to work our way to God on whatever level. What this is saying is adoption takes us out from that, adopts us out from being not in God's family under the law into a place now through Christ where we are. Or again, religion says born into, like we are born into some kind of inherent goodness and we learn to live a better life. That's what religion says, other religions, not Christianity. But the gospel says we're dead in our sin and we're adopted out of slavery to the law into God's family. How? By the sole work of Jesus Christ alone on that cross. It's very different. And then he says this, which is an amazing statement. It's just weird, uh, but it's awesome. He says in verse 6, and because you are sons, so one flow of thought here. Because of the gospel, because it's about Jesus dying for you alone, it's all about grace and God's gift to you, saying, I will save you, trust in me. Because of that, you've been, you've been freed now from your sins, under the, under the, from, out from the tyranny of the law, you've received adoption. Then look at verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word for for daddy or father. So what I love about this is, notice, it doesn't say we cry out. In fact, I'll just ask you guys, who's, who's doing the crying out here, grammatically? Who's doing the crying Abba Father? Jesus is, actually. We're crying out, but it's actually the spirit of Christ's son in our lives, right? 
God sends, God sends his spirit of his son into our hearts. He's crying, Abba, Father, through us. So we do that for sure, but it's actually the spirit of Christ himself who's doing the crying, which is interesting. It doesn't say we cry out, but rather Jesus does from within us. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, so it's not us. It should be a very freeing thought. You know, one of the things it actually does is it helps, and I've talked to some of you guys about this, this series. You've had great questions, by the way, that you've asked uh, throughout this series. Keep asking them. Um, but one of the things this does is it helps us address emotionalism. The idea that what if we don't feel like worshiping? What if we don't feel like the gospel is true? What if we don't feel like responding to God uh, emotionally? And if this is true, then the point is God's not waiting for you to conjure up feelings of joy, but simply to respond to the fact that he's given you his son. He's calling you to believe that his son has died and his son has now taken up residence in your body through his resurrection and your spiritual one. And it's him himself who is reconciling you and stirring up emotion in you when that comes and being your very act of worship. This is really mystical and it's weird and it's hard to understand fully. But he's saying that when we worship, it's actually Christ himself crying out, Father. When we recognize that God is our dad more than he's like a boss, like a, a good dad, rather than like a benevolent boss or something. And it's actually Christ helping us to recognize that peace about, about the gospel. And this doesn't mean that when, when you guys see things like this in the, in the Bible, it doesn't mean that we're puppets. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that we just kind of like wait for God to physically move our bodies to worship or to love and good deeds. That's taking this too far. It's too, uh, too much of a dichotomy between our actions and God's. You know, it's not like, uh, I think of that um, Princess Bride moment in, in uh, that movie, Indigo Montoya, where he prays to his father with the sword, like, and he kind of treats his body like it's like this puppet, move my body and guide my sword to the tree. You guys remember that, that moment? That's a great scene. But he's like, that, that's not, that's a good picture of what Christianity's not. You know, just because God's in control of your life doesn't mean that you're like a puppet now where God moves your body and moves the sword of your life or whatever the metaphor would be there. It, it's, it's not that. It's this. Work really hard at praying and worshiping and loving and doing good deeds. Then after you do all of them, credit God with all of them. Because it's God who's, who's been sent, it's Jesus who's been sent into our lives to be the worshiper, to, to be the connection point between us and God to be the essence of love himself. You see? So work hard at these things, but credit God. So there's no boasting. This is the Christian view of good works is try tirelessly, tirelessly to do good, but credit God with all of them. Religion can't say that. There's no gospel in it. It's about us, remember, ourselves flourishing moralistically under the law. But, but the gospel says you're out from that now and you have Christ alone. He has saved you. He lives inside you. He's prompting you to love and good deeds. He actually incites you to worship. I mean, this is, this is incredible if this is the case. If this is the case, then we really are saved. Everything. We can't boast about anything anymore. Anything. But we can joyfully, freely enter into the good. Joyfully, freely enter, in, even with our sins and imperfections and inabilities to perfectly understand these things. Because it's by grace, not our perfect theology. Enter into them to seek to understand together in, in community. And so the final, uh, the final so what here is verse 7. We've kind of been talking about this already, but a few more comments on verse 7. Again, says, so 
you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. A couple of wor- uh, words quick on, uh, on the word son before we move on. Th- there is a time, and even this sermon I've been trying to weave back and forth between the two as an example, um, but there is a time theologically and biblically to say when you see sons, sons and daughters. Uh, or some translations just translate child there when it's an inclusive use of the word son, when the, the male pronoun or the, the male form of the word, in this case son, is, is, is used. And, and that's actually true a lot of the time, most of the time, uh, that, that that's the case. But that's not the case here. Uh, sons is very important to maintain alone because th- th- this is about all Christians, men and women, being sons because sons are heirs. And the reason why it's important to maintain sonship is that daughtership or daughterhood didn't, wasn't an heir, physically speaking, in, in the Old Testament. So now men and women as Christians have this metaphorical sonship in the sense that they are heirs of the kingdom. Now, I remember I had a friend in seminary who was a gal who, when she was pushed on this by people like friends of hers that said, you know, what about that weird just kind of mention of just sonship in Galatians 4, 7 and this whole idea elsewhere in the New Testament? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't there be daughters in there as well? And she say, she got animated actually. She said, no, I want sonship. I want, because I want heirship. I want to be an heir of God. And she went on about it. I thought that was great. It's like, okay, sorry. Actually, I wasn't the one asking it, but, uh, but she, she got animated about it. And, and you should as well. Men and women in Christ, you are sons of God in this way. Sons and daughters, for sure in terms of inclusiveness there, gender-wise, but in terms of being an heir, men and women, you are sons. That means you're an heir of the inheritance of God's kingdom, which means you're a partaker of salvation. When God comes back and redeems this earth and makes it all new, you know, figuratively speaking, we have this plot of land in Christ, or even now, like, he is, he's guaranteeing the fact that we have um, inheritance, like a place, a home in in the future new earth. We are royalty in, in, God's, in God's eyes. With all that said, going back to 4-7 then, back up from the, the sun word. Note with me for a second here just the happy news that Paul uses the present tense in this, in this verse. You are a son. And because you are a son, you are an heir. And then remember, who is he writing to here? How do you start this letter? What's the problem in this church? What kind of people are, are this? Things aren't going well in the Galatian churches. He's the most angry he's ever been. And yet he's still recognizing without qualification, without bringing up their issues, you are still, in God's eyes, like a child. That's who you are. You're an heir of the future kingdom when he returns and fully destroys all evil uh, forever and establishes his kingdom here. We'll see him face to face and all of our tears will be wiped from our eyes by the hand of God itself. And death will be no more or pain or shame or any of that. The devil will be thrown in the lake of fire and all this stuff. So so note with me the fact, and this this is incredible, this is the case. He's saying this, in other words, to people with bad theology. He's saying you're a son, you're an heir, you're a child of God by faith, even though you have bad theology. People who don't totally get it. And that's okay because it's by grace. You know, he can say this to a broken church because he knows, to to use words from Galatians 3 and 4, he can say this because he knows that by faith they are chosen or adopted, same idea, baptized, 
freed, purchased, or redeemed, and loved. He sees their remaining muster seed of faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and concludes that faith is there because God chose them. And so we can affirm these things. If, and it's the same for you in the room who are Christians. It's the same in me. We're heirs of God's eternal kingdom. That's who we are. You know, we're, chi- we're children of God. Yes, us. With our doubts, our disbeliefs, our sins, our immaturities, our propensities to wander, our imperfect theology, us, we're heirs. That's who we are. We're all that messy stuff, but because we have faith, we're heirs, we're sons, guaranteed an inheritance in the future because we trust that God saves sinners. We trust that God is good. We trust that he's loving. We trust that he came into the world to fully undo evil. We trust that. And so these things can be affirmed. But if it were at all about the commandment, at all about works, at all about law, Paul could never mention this without qualification. Right? You are these things if you do such and such. If you change your life, then you'll have this fully in the future. But the Bible is gloriously not written like that. It's written to sinners. Or go to 1 Corinthians sometimes for a a buggy ride to the messiest church you'll ever read about in your life. And just read through that church the stuff that's going on there and see how Paul talks about them in these same ways. Not in a qualified way, if you get your life together. He still addresses the sin, for sure, as should we in our lives and churches. Evil's not okay. Sin's not okay. We're resurrected now. We should live, as, live like it. But alongside those things, addressing the situations, he says, you are. Not when you fix these things. You are now as messy people. And there's things going on there like, Christians suing one another in court, uh, prideful factionalism. There's uh, tongues being spoken in church out of order and the whole thing's being just whacked. And there's, there's married couples who are not having sex and unmarried people who are having sex and shouldn't be. And um, all kinds of just messy, or incest. Some guy sleeping with his mother-in-law in church. And it's like all kinds of crazy stuff. And in the context of that, Paul's saying, let's talk about that. That's not okay. But he brackets it off to the side. And says, remember who you are. Live like it. Remember the gospel. Remember how much Christ died for you. How much he addressed those types of sins. Walk away because he's allowed you to. And so then after that, because we know it's God, to go back to verse 6 about having the spirit of Christ here. Because we know it's God who sends his son into our hearts to himself be our goodness and himself do good deeds through us, including acts of worship and prayer, that cry out, Abba, Father. Because of all of that, freely love others this week. Freely worship and pray. And I say freely because all those acts are not really about you. You're not judged on them. Rather, according to the Bible, they're free gifts or graces given to you by Christ himself. Always remember that and distinguish yourselves from other religions that you may encounter, have, will, are currently in life, people that you talk to. Distinguish yourselves from them in that knowing all the good you will ever do in life as a Christian is not really you. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God. So put all that in your you know, theological pipe and smoke it. And rest, believe, show no partiality because of the gospel. Point with everything you are to the one who bled for you 
and who now reigns over all things, because you too are an heir. So live like it this week. Let's pray. God, thank you for